And if you would please turn with me in your copies of God's word to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We have finished the Christmas season, but yet I thought it would be appropriate as we continue through Matthew for this week that we would take a look at what it is that Christmas was to announce, what it was that Jesus has come for, and how it is that we can live that out. So I pray that you would look with me, Matthew chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask God's blessing one last time as we dive into this text today. Oh Lord Christ, we come to you and thank you for this passage that you've given to us, for the challenges and for the hope that it brings. I ask that you would be with us today as we look at it. Help our hearts to be open to respond to this. May our minds be quick to understand it and our souls ready to obey it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Repentance is sometimes a word that a lot of people have an uneasy relationship with. When we hear the term repent or repentance, the idea of feelings of guilt and shame sometimes crawl over our hearts as we think about that. Perhaps sometimes we think about repentance in terms it was never meant to be understood in. We look to repentance and think, well, to call people away from their sin is legalism. To call people to a holy life to follow rules is a bad thing, and instead we should emphasize only the grace of Jesus in our preaching. Sometimes people think that repentance is something that's burdensome, 
Well, maybe it's not wrong to tell people to turn from their sins, but at least you're putting a lot on people, maybe more than they deserve to have on their backs. Didn't Jesus say that his burden and his yoke was light? Perhaps others take a look at repentance, asking people to turn from their sin, and our culture is just being downright hateful. To ask people to turn away from a sinful lifestyle is something that shouldn't be said at all. These are all mistaken ways to look at repentance. Repentance is actually something that should fill us with joy because this is the reason why Christ came. As you remember when we were reading earlier in Matthew, his name was to be called Jesus because he was to save his people from what? Sins, exactly. It wasn't from feelings of inadequacy or saving us from the worst of ourselves. This is saving us from our sin. Sin is our problem. It's the biggest problem that we have in our lives. And what is being preached here is how to turn from that problem. And more importantly, who to turn to to get salvation from that problem. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to take a look at our two points, which you can see listed for you in your bulletin. We're going to see that God's message has always been repentance and cleansing from sin. It's not a, just a New Testament thing. This has been always been the case. And then the second thing is that to disobey this message is dangerous to your soul. So let's take a look at our first point. God's message always has been repentance and cleansing from sin. Here in chapter 3, we are introduced, at least in Matthew's gospel, we hear about John the Baptist earlier in Luke's gospel, even before we hear about Jesus. But here in Matthew, he is introducing this new character. Notice here at the beginning, he says, in those days. Uh, To think about in those days, one would think that we're talking about well, what was we just covered in chapter 2 when Jesus was a baby? But between chapter, three, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that little white space is about 30 years that has skipped over. It's one of those things where we think, well, did nothing important happen here? It's like, well, Matthew has a particular purpose. While I'm sure it would be fascinating for us to know what it was like for Jesus to be a child, and we get at least one story about that in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew wants to highlight what it is that Jesus has come here to do. He has come here to save us from our sins, to help us to turn from them. And so he's introducing this character, John the Baptist. He is out preaching in the desert wilderness a message of repentance. And here he is a fulfillment of prophecy. As we see, Matthew quotes there in verse 3, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Here, what Isaiah was referencing is a time when God would come and set everything right. And the rest of Isaiah, from chapter 40 through chapter 66, more or less, Isaiah is laying out a vision for what God is going to do for his people in setting all things right. So here, with John the Baptist preaching, it's like hearing the doorbell. 
The kingdom is close. What God has promised to do is at hand. It's been fulfilled here from Isaiah. But it's also fulfilling what we read earlier in our Old Testament reading in Malachi chapter 4. Remember how he was saying that first Elijah must come? This is what that's referring to. When Matthew talks about the things that John was wearing that day, it wasn't because Matthew has an interest in high fashion. It was because these clothes meant something. This was what Elijah used to wear when he would preach. So this would have alarm bells going off in Matthew's mind and in the mind of those that are hearing John the Baptist preach. There is something special here. Now, it bears mentioning John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated. He's not actually Elijah, but he's meant to be a symbol for Elijah. In fact, in the Gospel of John, they directly ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says, no. So this is meant to be a symbol. This is meant to be a sign that the Lord is coming. So now is the time to repent. That's what he says in verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've talked about and we started this morning, what repentance was not. It's not legalism. It's not an extra burden. It's not a hateful thing to call people to do. But what is repentance? What are we supposed to think about this most crucial part of the Christian life? Well, if you're going to look at repentance, you've probably heard that the word repent means to change one's mind. And that's not exactly wrong per se, but it's incomplete. It's more than just saying, well, I used to think this about this sin, and now I think that about my sin. There should be actions that follow from that thinking. Because if you really believe something, that's going to change how you react to it. So if we've ever been walking along out in our yard and we, there's a stick that is coming out from one of the bushes and we think it's a snake. We react accordingly, don't we? For me, it's a very high-pitched scream. I back away from the stick. But as soon as I find out it's a stick, I, my actions change. I'm more than happy to go and pick it up and toss it out of the way of my lawnmower. How we think about things changes what we do about them. And if we don't do anything about them, then we can pretty well say, you don't really believe this thing, do you? You don't, I don't really believe that I'm in danger if I'm going to walk over and pick up the stick, as I wouldn't do with a snake. So it is a changing of your actions. In fact, repentance, especially here, as John the Baptist is preaching about it, he's bringing back this Old Testament concept. Again, the message that has always been of returning. It's not just stopping from sin, but it's turning from sin to God. Too often we look at repentance like we look at New Year's resolutions. All right, I'm going to stop this thing out of my own strength. I'm going to white knuckle my way into the kingdom, try really hard, and reform myself. That's not repentance. Those are resolutions that won't be kept. What we have in our hearts is a sin, and that's too powerful for us on our own. We need Christ. That's why I love the Old Testament concept that's brought in here, return. Turn away from where we're going and back towards God because that's where the help is. 
Otherwise, it is just burden. If we're trying to do things all on our own, it is impossible. But when we turn to Christ, we're going to see that there is a change that comes. We need the power of God. And we're going to revisit that concept in just a minute as we go on here in this passage. But I want to take a look at this next line. It says, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean here? When he is talking about it being at hand, this is something that is very close. And as we've covered when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as it's called in Luke, it's referring to God's rule in the world. How God reigns over all things. That this establishment of this kingdom is very close in coming. Now one can imagine, well... John the Baptist says that the kingdom is coming. But Jesus didn't sit on an earthly throne at the end of this. In fact, he points to Jesus. Jesus does three years of ministry, dies on on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends into heaven. I don't see a physical kingdom. What are you talking about that it's at hand or it's near? I think the best way to explain it, especially now that we're 2,000 years out from this passage, is to think about it in terms of people coming to our own home. We've all just recently celebrated Christmas. And I know probably a lot of us had had family coming over or or going to other people's houses. And if you're like me, I kind of stake by the window and see when I can see the car coming into the driveway so I know how much time I have to quick pick up the house and get it in guest-ready form. And when people pull into the driveway, I announce to the house that our guests are here. But are they? Well, yes, they're outside, but they're not in the house yet. But even though they're just out in the driveway, even if they're on their cell phone finishing a call, guests being in the driveway have an impact on what is happening inside the house of getting things ready and prepared. And we don't stop preparing in our houses, even if our guests take a long time to come in. They're finishing up a call, and they're out there for an hour. We don't conclude, well, I guess they're not coming inside. We think, no, they are going to come in, and it's getting closer. Every minute that goes by, they're closer to coming in and being a guest in our home. That's what it's like for Christ. When Christ comes and begins his ministry, when he goes to the cross and wins victory over sin and death, The kingdom of God is in the driveway. It's here. The down payment has started. We know that God is going to fulfill his promise and come again and rule the world. But it's not yet. But every day that goes by, we're closer than we were before. And if anything, this should give us more energy to say, let's be prepared. Because when the king comes... He expects perfection. Now, if we are in any way honest with ourselves, we are not perfect. We are not ready. In fact, the houses of our souls are an absolute wreck. There's dirty dishes in the sink, clothes all over the house, holes in the drywall. It's a mess. It's not ready for the king. So what do we do? 
How do we prepare our houses for the arrival of Jesus? Our houses of our heart, I mean. Well, this isn't something, as I said earlier, that we fix on our own. This isn't something that we even could. But this is what's so wonderful about Jesus. This is what's so wonderful about when John later on will say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is when we turn from our sins and say, I can't fix this. And we turn to Jesus. Jesus takes us out of our house that's in, that's a wreck and puts us in his perfect house. Everything is as it should be. Then Jesus comes to our house and begins fixing things. Begins picking up all the trash, puts all the clothes away, fix the holes in the drywall, slowly, bit by bit, working with us as we're making this house to be a place and a home for Jesus. This is not a fast process. This is a very, very slow process, and we call this sanctification. I, for Christmas, got a whittling set, a wood whittling set. I got some some knives and some blocks, which is why I have a Band-Aid on, in case you can't see. Still learning. Ironically, cut myself trying to get the blade guards back on. But wood whittling is a lot like sanctification. When Jesus is working with us, it's like me trying to carve out something out of wood. You don't get to go very quick and chop off huge chunks of the wood. It's a very slow, almost shaving off of these wood blocks. And with each stroke, you can see that there's wood coming off, but it doesn't look a whole lot different than it did when you started. But as you sit there, hour upon hour, a shape begins to form out of that wood as someone who knows what they're doing, not me, forms something out of this wood. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. Repentance, as we see here, is both a one-time turning away from sin and surrendering our souls to Christ. And it's also an everyday returning and going back, cooperating with God as he shaves off that sin and makes us into what he wants us to be. It's a very slow process. It's a process that we can hinder. We ignore our time with God. If we forsake coming together to worship, if we leave behind our prayers, it doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but it does mean that that sanctification process, that being formed into the thing that Jesus wants us to be is slowed. This is something that we work with together. But this is a process, yes, it's hard, but it's a good thing. It's that process of being freed from our sin. Again, this is not working our way to heaven. If we come and ask Jesus to save us from our sins, as we saw from the thief on the cross, he didn't have time to go to Sunday school, join a church, go to seminary, learn all these things. He died just a few hours after he came to Christ. He was still able to go to heaven. But this is something where we can have a little taste of heaven here is through this repentance, becoming less selfish, less prideful, more honest, more loving to our neighbor. 
That's what we'll be in heaven. We'll be perfect. But we can have tastes of that here because that's what Jesus came to do. Again, it will take time. Sometimes we will find out as Jesus is cleaning our house that he uncovers a mess we didn't even know was there. But that's part of the whole thing. Christ working with us, making his path straight to our hearts, bringing us closer and closer to him. That's what repentance is supposed to be. This isn't something that fills us with shame and guilt. We find out that we're sinners. Yes, you're a sinner. And to give you comfort, you're worse than you think. But Jesus is even greater than you can imagine. And no matter what it is that's down there, Jesus can work on it. Will it go away instantaneously? No, not likely. Give you a view into my own heart. I've struggled with anxiety for most of my life. It's mostly worry and a pride thinking that I can run my own life without other people's help. And that always brings more anxiety to it. And while I've struggled with that at some level, it's been getting less and less. More and more of that wood has been shaved off as Christ continues to work with me. This is the message that John brings. This has been the message of the Old Testament as well, as God has called out to his people again and again to return from their evil ways and be blessed by God. But unfortunately, there have always been people who are willing to disobey, who look to repentance not as freedom, but as bondage. Saying, no, thank you. I would rather have my sin. It feels easier. It's more natural to me. To disobey this message is to be dangerous to our soul. That's what we look at in our second point. And as we get here to verse 7. Here, John confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people that we know pretty well. These were religious authorities of the day. But they were in the most dangerous position of all. These were folks, a lot like we can be sometimes, who are raised in churches, who believe that they don't need repentance. These are the folks that need repentance the most. It's the most dangerous thing to your repentance to think that you don't need it. They were dressed well. They had all the knowledge, but it didn't affect their heart. And that's why John speaks to them in the way that he does. This is a rather serious insult that John gives to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He calls them a brood or an offspring of vipers. At the time, as one commentator made known to me, they thought that vipers were born by biting their way out of their mom. So the idea would be that these were snakes who were willing to cause the death of their own mother. So to call these people vipers is to call them mother killers. These are, this is a terrible thing. But what would warrant such an insult? It's because they are telling God that he's wrong. They're telling God, I've got this on my own. I really don't need you. You sending your son was a waste of time. Because we've ascended the hill of the Lord. We are holy We don't need you. That's a really big insult. So John matches. And he tells them 
that the things that they're trusting in are not going to save them. Okay, as he goes in here in verse 9, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. These folks thought that because their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was faithful to God, that they can kind of ride his coattails. Someone else was faithful, so I don't have to worry about it. John says it doesn't matter who your father was or your grandfather was, whether they attended church or not. Everyone individually needs to come to a realization that they themselves need Jesus too. They need to be forgiven of their sins. The family tree doesn't impress God. As he says here, if God wants people, he can raise them up out of stones if he wants. That's not impressive. What God wants is one's heart. What he is looking for is fruit of repentance. The way you can tell whether or not you have an apple tree root in the ground is if you have apple tree fruit coming out the top. And if one is planted in Jesus, drawing from him, there's going to be fruit. But if you don't see it, then John has this warning. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. One commentator noted that when you want to cut down a tree, most people will cut it at the trunk. So the idea would be is you might be able to get another tree that comes out of it. But if it's diseased, you take it at the root so that it will not come back. It's an utter destruction. And that's what John promises. He warns that if there is no repentance in our lives, then destruction awaits us. This is a really scary thing. And it should make us, in some ways, a little uncomfortable. Because this is reality. This isn't one of those things that we think will never come to us. It is going to happen one day. All of us are going to have to face judgment. So how do we be ready? Verse 11, John the Baptist continues. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Hear what John the Baptist is saying. What I can do for you is limited, but there's one who's coming that's even greater than me. That's really quite a statement. Here, the Old Testament has been pointing to John the Baptist. There's this big prophet that's going to come and announce the Messiah. That must be a pretty important gig, right? But hear what John the Baptist thinks of himself. He says, the one who's coming after me is so much greater than me, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Taking off your shoes, someone to take off your shoes, that was considered the lowliest job that you could do. You would have slaves for that, to handle your shoes. So for John to say, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of slaves for the one who is coming, is quite a statement. But what is it that this one coming is able to do? He continues. He says, he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now what does that mean? 
What John the Baptist could do was give you a picture of what repentance looked like. Going and being immersed or sprinkled with water, depending on how we decide that decision. That this is to figure, to show a cleansing that takes place. But putting water over your head or even being fully immersed in the water doesn't take care of sin. It's a picture that's on the outside. But Jesus can take care of the sin. That's what makes him so much greater. Because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, as we'll see later on in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's not just what we see in Acts. In fact, the Holy Spirit does not primarily come to give tongues of fire. The main miracle that he comes to bring is holiness. When the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, he starts chipping away at our sin and starts making us holy. That's what I think the fire is referring to as well. When you look at fire in other contexts of the Old Testament, it's a refining fire. It's like what you do with gold. When you have dug gold out of the ground, there's lots of impurities in it. It's not pure. But when you subject it to a lot of heat, all the other stuff that's not gold burns away. And all that's left is that pure yellow stone. That's what Christ is offering to us. It's to refine us. Is fire hot? Yes. Does fire hurt? Yes. But it's shaping us into something that God wants us to be. And something that we want to be as well. This is what he brings. He offers us the opportunity to be holy. We're never going to be perfect the side of heaven. But we are going to be gradually moving towards that. Month by month, year by year. Season by season. Towards this holiness. And it says in verse 12 that Jesus is going to be the judge. He is going to be the one as he may take this picture from working with grain. And you would beat wheat. You would try to get all the grain to come out of these shells that they would have. It's called chaff. Chaff was much lighter than grains. What you would do is you'd take your shovel, throw it up into the air, and as the breeze would go by, it would blow away all of the chaff and separate that from the much heavier grain that would come down. And the chaff, well, it wasn't really good for anything, so they would just gather it up and burn it and use it as fuel. And that's what Christ tells us here, is he's here to separate wheat from the chaff. And this is something that we're called to be sorted into. So if we want to be what Christ wants us to be, if we want to be his gathered into his barn, then we come to Christ. We turn from our sins and to Jesus and he will welcome us. Doesn't matter what you've done. You can't out sin God. So come to him, return to God and find healing. That is what repentance means. And I hope that as we head into this new year, a lot of us are going to be making New Year's resolutions. And if the statistics are to be believed, 
about 83% of resolutions are all given up very quickly soon after they're made. Might it be instead of resolving that we repent and say, well, instead of I'm going to just make the willpower and do it, to say, Lord, I want to make this plan. I want to read my Bible every day this year. I want to pray every day this year. Here's the plan for how I want to do it. But Lord, you give me the power. Work together with him. Repent of those things that you've done in this previous year. And walk towards God as we head into this new one. Taking step by step, getting closer and closer to him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for coming into this world, for dying on the cross for our sins, so that we would be given the opportunity to turn from those very things that you've died for and to come to you, to return to you. I ask if there is anyone who is here in this room or watching us online or hearing us via podcast, if they've not heard of Jesus, or if they have and they've never surrendered to him, I pray that this day would be the day that they turn to him, to trust in him for their salvation and him alone. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.